Therefore, take heed to yourself, writes the Apostle Paul. I want to begin by asking a couple of questions. What do you spend more time doing and which comes easier? Standing in judgment over others or examining yourself? What do you spend more time doing and which comes easier? Talking to friends about the faults that you can see in others or talking to God about the faults that you see in yourself? Which is the more spiritual? To judge and talk about others or to examine yourself and confess to God your own failings? One of, the, one of the most annoying things that people can do when you're in a conversation with them is allow yourself to become distracted or they allow themselves to become distracted by someone or something just behind you that gets their attention and all of a sudden they're just not with you anymore and you feel like tapping them on the shoulder. Hey! I'm over here. I was talking to you. From time to time, it's as if the Apostle knows that as we're listening to a sermon being preached, we're busy applying the points of the sermon to everyone else in the congregation. Well, that's definitely what he needs to hear. If only she was listening to this. And Paul taps each of us on the shoulder and says, hey, over here, I'm talking to you. And I find his finger pointing at me. Examine yourself. Test yourself. Take heed to yourself. Or as Jesus put it, you'd be qualified to examine the speck in my eye. If, first of all, you take that great big plank out of your own. And Paul presents these exhortations under two broad headings in terms of taking heed. First of all, take heed to what you believe. And secondly, take heed to how you live. Because, of course, doctrine and conduct are always closely linked in the Bible. Some people say you are what you eat. The Bible says you are what you believe and you are what you think. Doctrine has always been intended to be the governor and regulator of your conduct. Doctrine has never been meant to be just a load of facts and hypotheses that you keep tucked away in some small dark corner of your brain. Well, let's think about these two things where Paul urges us to take heed. Now, firstly, Paul urges us to take heed to what you believe. One of the main themes that you'll find often repeated in Paul's letters is a warning against false teachers who, with deceitful words and with craft and guile, and often disguised under a cloak of impressive oratory, 
They lead believers and even whole churches into error and potentially into complete apostasy. That this was a problem in the days of the apostles should cause us to be even more on our guard today when we don't have such inspired men around. Now in this series we've been considering some of the therefore statements of Paul and here are two. First of all, Paul to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. But you have to take heed to yourself first. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And then writing to Titus, Paul says in the first chapter, there are many insubordinate, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, those believers who were of Jewish heritage, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Now Titus, of course, is one of the pastoral epistles as we've come to know them. And if you read through Paul's letters to Timothy, <clears throat> you'll see that warning against falsehood and error features even more prominently there than it does in his single letter to Titus. What's so striking is how gullible and susceptible we are to this danger. And do not think for one moment that there is any church which is autoimmune to this problem. Often, these things creep in very slowly, so slowly that no one notices what's happening unless you are constantly on your guard. And little by little, the church drifts away. Listen to the warning that Paul gives to the Roman church as part of the conclusion to his letter in chapter 16. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. And the little letter of Jude also mentions this problem 
so commonly found amongst the early churches. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice the similarities there? Smooth words, great swelling words, flattering speech to gain advantage. Good speakers with arguments that sound convincing. These are often the hallmarks of falsehood. Great vigilance and discernment is required in the churches of Christ. False teachers will often seem very impressive, seductive. Now, where can this lead if it's unnoticed, if it's left unchecked? Well, it can end up with the church thinking, well, this is really all rather nice. All this preacher ever does is send me away feeling like I've had a really good time and feeling really good about myself. It's not about what I've learned and what I now know that I didn't know before. It's all about how it makes me feel. Be careful, says Paul. I think I'd like all the preaching to be like this. Can we have more of this, please? This is my preference for preaching. This is the kind of thing I like to hear. I haven't come here to learn something. I just want something that sounds and feels exciting and gives me a lift because that must mean that God is in it, right? Be careful says Paul. Now, of course, preaching should make you feel something, but it must have a solid biblical foundation. And it also must include instruction and sometimes correction and rebuke for our soul. Think of those verses that we've been looking at in Psalm 19, if you like, on Wednesday evenings. Has there been any evidence at all of this in the preaching that the Bible is the law of God, the testimony of God, the commandment and statute of God? What about the fear of the Lord, his judgments? What wisdom has it imparted to you as the preacher's been preaching the word of God? In what way have you been more enlightened in God's truth and righteousness? Really be careful about finding yourself in a situation where the Bible is increasingly marginalised as the preacher merely regales you with stories and his own unique take on things. That's what was happening in New Testament days. Very easy on the ear, perhaps, but also far too light by far on the heart and the mind. Paul says to Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, 
they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Instead of going from the milk of the word to the meat, they've gone from full cream to skimmed. Have you ever had skimmed milk? It's white, but it's like water. It's so thin. Fables, myths, legends, warns Paul. Works of fiction. And at some point down the line, the church finds that the bulk of its teaching has no biblical basis whatsoever. And those who teach are bringing all kinds of things which lie outside of the Bible as their main point of reference. There'll be some in the church who suddenly wake up and they're asking themselves, how on earth did we get from there to here? We've used this illustration quite a lot over the years, but given that we live in such a historic port city, it's quite pertinent and it makes the point very well. Imagine you were setting sail from Liverpool and heading across the Atlantic to New York. But as you head out uh, across from the Irish Sea, your ship's compass is two, two degrees out and you're sailing two degrees off course all the way across the Atlantic, you'd find that by the time you got to the far side, you'd be a hundred miles away from the Big Apple, not even close to where you should be. And of course, what the apostles warn against is what they actually witnessed, which is that you may begin your journey even only half a degree off course, but as time goes by, that half becomes one degree, one degree becomes two degrees, becomes three, becomes four. And in the middle of the ocean, if you're not taking regular sightings to recalculate your position, no one will even notice that you've drifted so far away. And by the time you reach land, you'll be in South Carolina, never mind New York. You must take heed to what you believe. You must keep taking regular sightings against the Bible to make sure there has been no drift because it's so easy to drift off course. Keep bringing everything back to the Bible. Where is that in the Bible? How is that confirmed in the Bible? What does the Bible have to say on that subject? What is it that that verse is saying in its proper context? Is that the right method of interpretation to use for that type of biblical writing and so on? If someone brings you a supposed new understanding of a particular doctrine, think it through. What effect is that going to have on this doctrine and this one and this one and this one? Hang on a minute. This is reshaping the whole gospel into another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Examine what you believe. Examine what you're being told to believe against the Bible. Examine yourself. Check yourself. Test yourself. Take heed to what you believe. Of course, this is a hugely important area for elders in a church. That's one of the things that you need to pray for elders in this area taking heed in what we believe as a church. 
And then Paul also says on this issue of taking heed, take heed to how you behave. Take heed to your conduct. 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? You should be living as though he is. And then the, the, the passage we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 10. Paul goes back thinking about that time when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, heading towards the land of Canaan. But not all of them were as they should be. They are, they are given as examples to us of how not to be, says Paul. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now when Paul talks about being careful that you don't fall, let me just say first of all, no Christian can ever lose their salvation. Let me just say that very clearly right from the outset, in case you're worried that that's what the implication of verse 12 is. We can look at it in two ways, that verse. Take heed, him who thinks he stands, lest he fall. The first is that there will actually be some who do fall away, but that's because they were never truly born again in the first place. Now that was the case for many of the Jews as they came out of Egypt, which is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's been true of every generation since of Jews, and it's the same in the Christian church. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And the way he puts it is like this, there are children of Abraham by means of birth, but they're not children of God, because although they have Abraham's blood flowing through their veins, they don't have the same kind of faith in their heart that Abraham had in his heart. Nearly all of the older generations of Israel perished in the wilderness during those 40 years of wanderings. Of the Israelites who actually arrived in Canaan, hardly any of them were alive when they left Egypt. They were all born during those 40 years of wanderings. There were many who were of the nation of Israel, but they were not citizens of God's kingdom. It's a bit like the first three examples of the seed that was sown in the parable that Jesus told, where some kind of response to the word seems to have occurred for a time, but eventually it falls away to nothing. It was never the, the real article in the first place. There will be those who do fall away, but the second thing that's meant is that it is possible for believers to have a dreadful fall into, blacks, into, into backsliding and sin for a time from which they, they do recover, from which they are restored, about which they are repentant and the Lord restores and heals. But that fall can cause such a shockwave in local churches and even beyond, particularly if the one who falls is in leadership, which sadly is not unknown. In the last few weeks in this series, we've been thinking about walking worthy of your calling and 
living to please and glorify God? And what's the aim in these messages? Well, it's simply this, that each of us, as we're concluding that thought now in this message, that we might be exhorted to examine ourselves. Examine yourself. Me, examine myself. Remember, Christ is in you, says Paul. Oh, the difference that should make. And how we should want that difference to be there. Displaying the evidence of the indwelling of Christ in all his fullness. That should be your overwhelming desire and mine. In which we're examining ourselves. Never mind him over there. Never mind criticising everything that, he, that she does. This is about you, says Paul. What about you? Take a look at you. Because Paul says to every believer, I, I care about you. And I care about Christ who is in you. So come on, join me, he says, in examining yourself all the time. Because I'm absolutely convinced that this featured large in Paul's own devotional life. From time to time he talks very candidly about where God has brought him from and what God has taken him through in his Christian walk. Of course he's able to say, it is by God's grace that I am who I am. But Paul, I believe, spent a lot of time examining himself before the Lord. He's able to say with confidence to churches, don't you remember how I was when I was with you? Do you not recall my manner, my attitude, my conduct, my speech? Now Paul isn't boasting when he says these things because often he's asking churches to remember and to recall actually the simplicity of his life and his ministry, the simplicity of his preaching. His life and his ministry were plain and simple. I'm sure he wasn't dull, but he himself confesses he wasn't a scintillating speaker. His meetings were not spectacular extravaganzas, which it seems to me so many Christians are demanding nowadays as a, as a supposed sign of God being at work amongst them. That's not how Paul was. And he's confident to be able to remind churches that he sought to practice what he preached constantly examining his own conduct, checking his own conduct and speech and motives against the word of God and before the Lord. And he, has, he exhorts us to do likewise, to take heed to ourselves. Use the Bible as a mirror to examine yourself before the Lord. Many years ago when I worked for the bank, I went down to London on an assessment course to see if I was cut out to be a staff trainer. It was one of the most tough, gruelling weeks of my life. Um, strangely enjoyable, but really hard, hard work. Every day you'd prepare a short presentation. They began at just 10 minutes in length by... By the time we got to the end of the week, you were up to about a 20-minute presentation. And on every occasion, your presentation was video recorded. Um, it was all done on tape in those days, of course. 
Um, no digital stuff back then, although it was in colour. The rest of the class were also watching and they were making notes to give you feedback. But first of all, you were handed the videotape of your own presentation and you went away to another room. You had to watch yourself and complete your own feedback form on yourself. And then you had to come back into the classroom, stand in front of all the others and criticise your own performance. It was a, a most interesting and enlightening experience. Terrifying first time around in front of strangers. But it became easier and more constructive as the week went on. And seeing those things about yourself which were not what a good trainer ought to be so that you could seek to address it and put it right was really helpful. That's what Paul is talking about here. Like the man who went into an artist's studio to see him chiselling away at a huge lump of rock big piece of marble, asks the sculptor what he's doing. I'm getting rid of everything that isn't a horse, he said. Examine yourself. Check yourself. Be getting, be getting rid of everything that is not a good follower of Christ. And note how Paul's concern <clears throat> is for those who think they don't need to bother. Him who thinks he stands. Some of you worry about this kind of thing all the time, that you might fall. Can I say you are probably one of those who never will, even though it's a constant worry to you? Will you have little stumbles and slips? Oh, of course you will. Will you be unnecessarily hesitant and unsure sometimes as a believer? frequently but actually falling well no by God's grace you haven't have you and you probably won't especially if you heed Paul's words here it's those who think they have no need to concern themselves with such exhortations who probably are most in need of doing it God has a lot of time for quiet, unassuming faithfulness and godliness. It's not spectacular, doesn't attract much attention, but it pleases the Lord. Go into any small, seemingly struggling church, as I often have done over the years, places I've gone to preach to, and I'll tell you what you'll frequently find there. You'll find quiet, gentle, godly, faithful, kind and generous, servant-hearted Christians who no one's ever heard of, who love and serve Christ with all their heart. And I'm pleased to say you'll find those people in bigger churches too. I've had to learn over the years there's no place in the Church of Christ for snide remarks, 
for finger-pointing, for head-wagging and tut-tutting. Because if I will just pause to take heed to myself, I discover there's so much that I need to get on with. There's no time to be looking at anyone else. So much that I need to address in my own life. How could I possibly dare to point the finger at another? Maybe you are as good as you think you are. But I had my grand delusions about myself knocked out of me long ago. And for me, I know my weaknesses and my failings are always the things that I'm staring at every day. Brothers and sisters in Christ, these are really important exhortations that all of us need to take hold of, that we take heed to ourselves, that you take heed to yourself in what you believe and in how you live and in your manner of conduct. Because, you see, I need you to do that for me within the body of Christ. And you need me to do that for you within the body of Christ. We depend upon each other doing this, that the body remains strong and healthy and grows. And because Christ is in you, and he longs for you to be a vessel for honour to him. If Belvedere Road Church, like any church, is to continue and have any future as one of those golden lampstands as churches are pictured in the Revelation, a lampstand of faithful, godly, righteous, obedient, humble, Christ-like, biblical gospel witness and preaching and teaching. These exhortations of the Apostle will play a huge role in our keeping on in the faith, in you keeping on in the faith. Isn't that what we long for one another? That we would keep on in the faith and to do so faithfully. Let us all, by God's grace, take heed to ourselves.